Welcome, everyone, to the 24th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Christopher O'Connor coming to you from suburban Houston. And with me, as always, is Arturo Andrade coming to you from Guangzhou, South Korea. And we host the podcast made just for you. We don't do hot takes here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We do honest takes. So then, this belongs to you. Well then, who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock and roll no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck predominates here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, where we not only celebrate the music, we live its majesty in full color and at full force. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before. Join our curmudgeonly community today. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and all the other places where you find all the other podcasts. Drop us a line at curmudgeonrocketgmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at, at curmudgeonpod. And coming soon, you'll be able to become part of our own private Facebook group where you can share the thoughts, musings, and random excitement with your fellow travelers among the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll goodness. Hey, Arturo. Are you ready to boogie? Yeah, I am. And uh, um, more than that, it just dawned on me that uh, this month, we're in December, as we're recording this, this month marks the six six years after the death of Scott Weiland, the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots, and we are doing an STP-centric episode today. So uh, yeah, it's fitting. Before we get to that, I cannot think of anything less Stone Temple Pilots-like than this <laughs> today's episode of the edition of the Parallel Universe, otherwise known as the Country Music Edition of the Parallel Universe. Wow, they have twang in the Parallel Universe. They do, and I'm going to bring the twang later. Okay. Well, t- 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 tell us more about what we're doing here in the Parallel Universe today, Arturo. Well, my album is by a country star who would be a superstar if country music were better. And uh, you're doing a duo album, and one of the members of that duo is legitimately country music. But that was the worst Levon Helm impersonation I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I got to try something. Yeah, I was going to say, you got to swing for the fences once in a while. <laughs> but anyway, yes, so that sound you hear, ladies and gentlemen, is it coming? Yes, you hear it now. There it is. It is the country music edition of their curmudgeonly parallel universe. Uh, in this par- parallel universe version of Earth, country uh, m- uh, uh, mainstream country music radio is not a piece of shit uh, run by right-wing rednecks. It is actually run by real country music artists making real country music, not, as Tom Petty calls it, really bad pop rock with fiddles. <laughs> so uh, I will begin with my recommendation. Um, and this is a real album by an artist that if you're not into country music, you would not know. But uh, anyway, for those of you who don't know, Sturgill Simpson is a mid-tier country music star. Uh, and what he really is, is a throwback to 1970s anti-establishment outlaw country music. Um, he solidified himself as this with his first two albums, uh, 2013's High Top Mountain and 2014's Metamodern Sounds in Country Music, 
the latter is arguably the best country music album of the last decade. Now, this being the parallel universe version of Earth and country radio that Chris and I have created, contemporary country music would not be the tacky right-wing miasma oozing from country radio stations, but it would instead be real country music. And in this universe, Sturgill Simpson is much more than a mid-tier star. So, of course, Simpson being against everything that the Nashville establishment stands for in the inferior regular universe, it is natural for him to want to show off his eclecticism. Uh, In his 2016 album, A Sailor's Guide to Earth, he expanded into R&B and soul, 60s, 70s style, of course, uh, revved up country rock. And it was also notable for a charming old school country cover of Nirvana's In Bloom. Which is no fantastic. Jo- yeah, yeah, no joke. No joke. It, it, he did that and it's really good. Um, he followed that up with 2019 Sound and Fury, which deeply divided his fans and pissed off his record label, Electra, at the time. What was Simpson's attempt at glossy 1980s style pop rock ended up sounding something like Waylon Jennings trying to cover Loverboy. Needless to say, it sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I think that's about the most uh, 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 dead on description. Uh, It it doesn't take much imagination to, 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 to hear that one. Or not, yeah. not want to hear that one. Not want to hear it, yeah. He yeah. loved it. No one else did. Anyway, uh, in 2020, the pandemic, in addition to a COVID-19 infection that he got, saw good old Sturgill retreat to his home and the studio. And he released two albums of bluegrass versions of songs from his, ba- uh, his back catalog. Now, this really tipped his hat as to what he would do next. And that... And what would come next is an album called The Ballad of Dude and Juanita, a genuine, honest-to-God, old-school, old-fashioned, twangy-ass country music record. Like the best country albums, it's a story album about a Kentucky farmer named Dude whose half-Native American wife Juanita is kidnapped by some crooked varmint. Old Dude travels high and low until he finds Juanita, reclaims her, and kills the bastard who stole his wife. It's a classic, comforting, endearingly traditional country music tale of love and revenge. And it's short, too. And yes. a little under a little under 30 minutes in length. Yeah, 20, have, 27 and a half minutes. And, uh, I know. <laughs> uh, he, he, he loves Juanita so dearly so that he uh, recruited Willie Nelson to help him co- uh, co-write the song to Juanita. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly. how true this record is. Yeah, it's very old school. You have tear in your beer balladry, such as one in the saddle and one on the ground. You have Mexican mariachi flavored love songs like Juanita. And you have upbeat country shuffles that go off into bluegrass jams like the song Shamrock. Now, here's the thing is the irony of Sturgill Simpson is that as much as he aspires to be eclectic and diverse with his musical palette, his songs are actually at their best when they are within the confines of traditional country music. And I've always felt that. So Sturgill, welcome back to the country fold. Think twice before you leave it again. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, I, I, I really do like this little record again. It's uh, it's, it's very focused. Uh, it's very reverent. Uh, obviously he's going for 
what was uh, a pretty strong country music uh, uh, tradition there uh, for a while in uh, the 60s and the 70s. It's And it seems like everybody and their brother was doing a version of this kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And again, there's obviously it goes back to Appalachia and it goes back to, uh, you know, 150 years. There's a, an American song tradition of these uh, of these folk ballad uh, song suites uh, yeah. but like, you know, Kenny Rogers did a couple of, you know, obviously the gambler is one of those. And, uh, you know, Mer- they all did one. Merle, Whalen, uh, Willie did a couple. Uh, Johnny Cash in the 60s did a bunch of them. Yeah, and and then Chris Christopherson made a career out of uh, that. Although his 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 folks were more real and more raw and more gritty, uh, yeah. but you know Sturgill is uh, standing on the shoulders of giants here. And I wasn't kidding when I said that Willie Nelson uh, helped out. Uh, he actually did co-write uh, the song Juanita. So you know Sturgill's got uh, uh, friends in, in very high places. Uh, <laughs> you believe the guy is ninety years old now? Yeah, yeah. Will, good old Willie. He 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 doesn't yeah. die easily. No, I I, I was going to say, you know, uh, you know, God God bless him. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, and like Arturo alluded to, uh, we're really focused on country ish or or uh, American vernacular uh, music to uh, uh, use a phrase that uh, Peter Goralnik made uh, popular for rock and roll nerds like us. Uh, so my album, it's a, it's it's way more uh, mainstream and it's getting a lot of press uh, and maybe not deservedly so, but understandably so. Right. Uh, we're talking about Robert Plant for the second straight week. Robert Plant is on the cast yeah. uh, and Alison Krauss. Uh, most of you will remember that they uh, released an album in 2008 called Raising Sand, which won a whole bunch of Grammys and... Uh, really got a lot of love and was sort of the the really cool album for middle-aged people uh, and older people uh, back then. And it really was kind of a lightning in the bottle effort because you had, well, it was, it was kind of a Frankenstein's monster uh, of an Americana effort because you had uh, Robert Plant, who we all know uh, from Led Zeppelin and from his other uh, world music uh, uh, ventures of the last 20 years. Arturo uh, talked about the rearranger. Uh, last week. Uh, and then you have Alison Krauss and I got a hand at the, uh, Alison Krauss. She's, it's felt like she's been bursting on the scene, uh, since she's been around, she's been around 25 years. So yeah. she's, she's managed to keep herself kind of in a fresh position. And so you've got those two coming back together again to do raising sand, uh, you know, who are on raising sand. And then T-Bone Burnett was their producer. And so, uh, here was a very clever, but but very cool uh, combination of these two great interpreters of uh, of uh, Americana, whatever you want to call it, uh, folk, blues, roots, country music, uh, with a producer who had uh, a very distinct uh, Americana steeped style in Burnett. You know, echoey guitars. You know, very um, you know, just sort of uh, very uh, spooky. Uh, kind of purposely uh, evocative, cinematic, and put those three together, and you end up with uh, one of the best albums of 2008, Raising Sand. 2007, well, 2007, actually. 2007. Oh, okay. They won the Grammy in 2008. Right. Yes, but this <laughs> album was 2007. Yeah. And so after uh, many years of fits and stops and say, hey, 
uh, do you want to do a follow-up to that? Well, maybe we can. And there were some false starts. Well, here in the at the end of 2021, they finally were able to pull it together. And they have now come out with the follow-up uh, called Raise the Roof. Get it? Let's talk about this for a little bit. Now, T. Bone Burnett, again, uh, you know, a champion producer of a, a lot of Americana artists over the last 20 years, uh, fabulous guitar player, fabulous uh, producer, but he has this, um, what I'll call, he has his magic kaleidoscopic Americana jukebox, mm-hmm. where basically you, his thing is he wholeheartedly believes, uh, and his his output really strongly suggested that he can take any song and Americanize the shit out or Americana eyes the shit out of it. Uh, I think that's what he's really uh, going for. And so, you know, when he does things, he, he creates these dreamscapes and uh, they really are informed by the ghosts of Appalachia and Bayou country. You know, I'm down here in Bayou country now here in uh, Houston. And there is a, there is a Bayou sound. There's a Louisiana side to it and a Texas side to it. And, uh, T-Bone seems to capture uh, both. Now, the dreamscapes on uh, Raise the Roof, uh, they're, some of them are hopeful and wide-eyed, and others are darker and uh, closer to, uh, to nightmares. Now, you know, there's a fine line between mystical and spooky, and Burnett, you know, he usually toes that line without fear. Doesn't mean it always works, though. Yeah. On, thi- on this record... I actually prefer the nightmares to the dreams. Uh, and the problem ultimately is, is that there's more dr- dreams than nightmares. Uh, album gets off to a really strange start. Uh, the uh, the first two dreams, or the first two songs out of the gate, they aren't only lovely, but they're also poppy. And not only that, they kind of do the reverse of what they were doing on Raising Sand. Whereas that record consistently put an edge on its selected songs here with the first two volleys out of the gate, which are reworkings of Calexico's Quattro world drifts mm-hmm. in and the Everly brothers, the price of love uh, plant and Krauss along with Burnett take the edge off. Yeah. Where they, yeah. Where they extract the pretty uh, laying there within the quirky and the twangy of the originals. Now, if the originals didn't seem all that wistful or contemplative or moody, uh, moody, uh, before, uh, maybe they will now on a return uh, to those originals. Yeah, I, I, as someone who's a big Calexico fan myself, I really didn't like uh, what Plant and Krauss did with Quattro because the original Calexico version from 2003's amazing album, uh, Feast of Wire, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's spooky, it's haunting, it's got, it's, it's got, it's got this, 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 resonant, uh, this resonating darkness to it. And I kind of feel like... Uh, um, T Bone kind of like took that out of this record and just made it like, eh, he Americana iced it a little too much. Yeah, well, but here's the thing. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the original Quattro, it's it's very much in the Joey Burns wheelhouse of the Sonoran, yeah. the Sonoran uh, Valley uh, spin on uh, on Mexican music. He's got that film noir. Uh, yeah. edge you know with the horns and and the, the 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 clicking percussion and all of that i like this version better only in the sense that i think that that sort of gentle wilting uh the piano key the softer vocals like you really get the moodiness uh of the song i think it, re- it really kind of 
I think it really kind of befits the mystery of the song a little bit more than the Burns quirky, uh, more not clever, but sort of more amped up uh, style does. And so uh, the the main point being here is that you're taking stuff that's already kind of wacky and de-wackyizing it, yeah. <laughs> which is the yeah. exa- with when at least in these two instances is not what they did on Raising Sand. <laughs> yeah, on Raising Sand. Uh, I will say this though: uh, there are some highlights and there are some times when they do approach more of the nightmare uh, than the dream, as I said. Uh, there are, I mean, Alison Krauss has just got some beautiful vocals on this record at times. Uh, she has a really haunting, uh, uh, spin on an old Burt Jantz tune that, that's your old, your, your buddy Burt Jantz. Yeah. Uh, on, I, uh, I, it yeah. don't bother me. It don't bother yeah. me, which, you know, I actually, yeah. I mean, I like that here. Uh, they also have these really pretty sprinkles of pedal steel, uh, underneath uh, the arrangement of uh, Merle Haggard's uh, ballad, uh, Going Where the Lonely Go, uh, which again, Krauss uh, dominates and does lead vocal on. Uh, there's actually a really good original on here that Robert Plant and T-Bone uh, Burnett wrote themselves called High and Lonesome. Uh, it's got that sort of uh, slightly bluesy thing that Zeppelin used to do where they would do these they were they were more rock songs with a little hint of blues and think more yeah. sort of the the like the boogie with stew kind of stuff yeah. uh you know and uh so we have that and then uh what i think is the best thing on the record and you may disagree with me arturo is i like their cover of can't let go on this um and that's I don't i really don't like it at all yeah but let me explain this and, and you know it's really interesting and i think it's cool uh, the way they do it. Um, so Can't Let Go uh, is it has had an interesting uh, path over the 25 or almost 30 years uh, of its existence. Uh, it was written by a guy named Randy Weeks, who uh, never really had success on his own. I think released like an album or two. Uh, got some critical praise, but uh, he had this song called Can't Let Go which he yeah. recorded, I believe it was in 1989, I want to say, somewhere somewhere around there. Uh, his version sounds like the kind of thing that the house band from the movie Roadhouse would have put. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's, no real, there's no real tricks to the arrangement. It's just straightforward bar, you know, country bar rock. And, and, then, uh, and then Lucinda Williams recorded yes. the, definitive, the definitive version of that song. Yes, and then Lucinda Williams takes it and gets this really sexy acoustic, uh, like, swing and twang out of it and you know like like quote unquote revs it up but it's an acoustic guitar and you can tell like her and roy bitten really had a lot of fun uh uh, working on that and so it gets this kind of rollicking it's just her and the guitar uh uh, performance here though and again this goes to show you it's a fabulous lesson on how brilliant artists and producers and arrangers can find the hidden spaces in the songs of brilliant songwriters. Uh, who knew that Can't Let Go had a Bo Diddley beat somewhere <laughs> hidden in there? Yeah. And so, boom, you know, one of those Bo Diddley beats. And here, uh, Can't Let Go gets a really cool little Bo Diddley beat. It's well, the, bit- the, 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 the Lucinda version implied the Bo Diddley beat. She just didn't put it on there. But, but you can hear you can hear it on Lucinda's version. It's implied. 
you know. Yeah, it, but it's not. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's not even then. It's it. I guess you could say it's subtle. She's got the she's got the little skitter going. Yeah, she's got yeah. the little skitter and it, it's almost like a skitter and pat. It's almost like yeah, it's it's a skitter and pat swing. Whereas here, it's just definitely just a straightforward chug. Um, not quite jo- Johnny Cash and Bo Diddley were were different, uh, but. This still, I think, is closer to Diddley than Cash, uh, sure. but but a really a really neat trick. Uh, this is really all to say that other critics and writers out there who have read uh, uh, cover this uh, album and in their interviews with uh, Plant and Krauss have referred to this as a exercise in lightning striking twice. Uh, mm. I ain't going that far. No, it isn't. Yeah, because this album is softer and poppier and more self-conscious than Raising Sand. Why? Because they caught lightning in a bottle once, they realized it, and so now it's self-conscious. It's like, oh, we are doing it again, and you know, can we outdo ourselves, or can we even come close to matching that? Yeah. Uh, they, they, you know, look. Then it was magic. Now it's still cool, but let's not toot the celebratory horns too loudly. So we are leaving the countrified twangified parallel universe uh, where, where the cowboys are actually still dangerous. Uh, and we are now uh, re-entering this world where really, we are going to end. We're going to enter a stone temple. Yes. Uh, <laughs> really looking forward to this uh, in defense of stone temple pilots. What is there to defend about fucking stone temple pilots? Tell us Arturo. Yes. Well, let me give some context here uh, for all you listeners out there. In the last episode, um, as our millions and millions of curmudgeonly fans would know, uh, we started a new series called A Legacy. Insert artist name, Ellipses, A Legacy, where we focused on the discography, legacy, and influence slash importance of a band slash artist people don't generally think of. And we started this series with one of our with one of our very best episodes. Again, thanks to author Ronan Gavoni for being our guest. Go check out his book, Not For You, Pearl Jam and the Present Tense, uh, covering the career arc of the legendary band Pearl Jam. Well, we figured it would be a great idea to start another series by transitioning from Pearl Jam to a band who in the 1990s was accused by many critics of essentially ripping Pearl Jam off and calculatedly writing the grunge tidal wave in the 1990s. This band, of course, is Stone Temple Pilots, and the name of this new series is In Defense Of. Uh, In this series, uh, we will take a band slash artist or an individual album that are either critically derided or commercially ignored or both, and take the time to analyze their work in the case of a band and artist, defend said work, and argue why these bands or albums deserve re-examination and retrospective appreciation. Uh, we think STP is a perfect band to kick off this series because in the 1990s, no band were as polarizing in regard to populist fans versus snooty hipster music critics and snooty hipster music fans. Uh, um, not even Pearl Jam, you know, got that much derision as these guys did. Now, STP, did they deserve the disrespect? We are going to argue, hell, fuck, no. Also, we're going in depth into their peak period albums from the 1990s and present the case as to why they are better and in some cases much better than anyone remembers them being. 
So the end of 2021 is drawing near. It's been a hell of a curmudgeonly journey through this post-COVID era. Or is it pre-COVID? Or is it post-COVID? Anyway, it's about that time where we start contemplating. What were the best popular music albums of the year? My pick for top albums? The list includes efforts from Lucy Dacus and Mdu Mokhtar. Arturo's list? He'll name Genesis Owasu and Idols, among others. Both of us would name Amo and the Sniffers as one of this year's biggest winners. But what do you think? This is your podcast, after all. Tell us your picks for the albums, songs, and artists of the year. Weigh in by writing to us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or perhaps DM us at curmudgeonpod on Twitter. So now, let's start our defense of Stone Temple Pilots. When we press play on Stone Temple Pilots' debut album, Core, the first thing we hear on the opening song, Dead and Bloated, is singer Scott Weiland passionately and almost angrily singing the opening verse a cappella through a megaphone, and very, very articulately and passionately. It's a startling jumpstart to a really good album. Is it a better beginning than that of Nirvana's Nevermind or Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger? Of course not. But it's arguably on par. It signaled that STP was a band to take seriously. Their main sin, however, was that Core was released on September 29, 1992. Those other two records I just mentioned uh, were released on September 24, 1991. So about a year and five days difference. If STP had released this record a year earlier, then we are arguably recording a very different episode tonight. Agree, Arturo? Yeah. Um, and which kind of brings me to the first uh, myth. Because uh, uh, for all you folks out there, Chris and I came up with five myths about Stone Temple Pilots. And you're alluding to the first one, Chris, what you said alluded to that. And the first myth of STP was that they were Pearl Jam wannabes. Now, I, I like the fact that you brought up the release of Core and when it was released, uh, and specifically in addressing the first myth uh, for STP that they were Pearl Jam wannabes. If if you know the first thing, if the first thing you ever watched by STP, like a lot of people, was the video for Plush, then yeah, I guess you can think that. You know, um, he's got all of you know that video came out. Late 92, got big in early 93. Uh, he's copying all of Eddie Vedder's mannerisms and shit. And, uh, you know, Beavis and Butthead are making fun of him and, all, and yeah. all on. But if you really look at the the liner notes for Core, don't look at when it was released. It came out September 92. Look at when it was recorded. Yes. Core was recorded in late 1991, fall, end of fall, early winter 1991 going into very early 1992. I have a really hard time believing that at that point when they were recording Core, they had heard of Pearl Jam. Right. Or, <laughs> yeah. or, or, or had heard of Nirvana, actually. They- well, I'm, not, I'm sure they knew Nirvana a little bit back then, but they, they really barely if did not know Pearl Jam at all. So if you're going to call them a wannabe of anybody, the closest comparison, I think, if you, if, if you are to do that, I would say STP were kind of sort of Alice in Chains wannabes because yeah. Dead and Bloated set sounds a lot like Alice in Chains. Yeah, that, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, buy, I'll buy that. But yeah, not a little bit. 
little bit. I mean, it's that grunge uh, soul uh, thing going on. So, yeah, no, they were not Pearl Jam wannabes. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head, Arturo, that I think yeah. most people, their introduction to uh, STP was when Posh uh, went into heavy rotation in the summer of 1993. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, I am... I don't know if I'm an exception, but I remember this sex type thing. Yeah. Hit MTV on, in January of 1993. It was yeah. either December of 92 or January of 93 when it went into rotation. I saw that and I remember going to, uh, I was a senior in high school. I remember going to school the next day and talking to a friend of mine or mentioning to a friend of mine, I'd seen this band and this band's going to be just as big. And he looked at me like four heads. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Or who the hell are you talking about? Because he hadn't seen yeah. it yet. Um, yeah. So they were not Pearl Jam wannabes just because, yes, I mean, by Posh, you've got Scott Weiland making faces for the camera. And again, it's all timing. It was the summer of 1993 yeah. that grunge was at its fever pitch uh, in terms yeah. of uh, people really getting on board. And, uh, you know, remember in September of 93, Eddie Vedder made the cover of Time. Yeah. And so Plush had the nerve to hit the air at the exact same time. Uh, here's a funny thing. Now, you remember, uh, Eddie uh, Vedder was in San Diego, uh, you know, up until the end of 1990 when yeah. uh, uh, the Pearl Jam guys got Gosford and Amen and those guys discovered him. Well, I know in an interview with Cameron Crowe a few years later, uh, Vedder professed, I never even heard of those guys when I was in San Diego. So, uh, you know, they had performed as Mighty Joe Young. That was their their name uh, at first. And they were a relatively young band uh, before they got their deal. And they had only been around for like a year or so uh, before then. So, yeah, they were kind of doing their own thing. Uh, grunge hadn't even become a neon word when they were recording that. Again, maybe they were a little familiar with Nirvana. Because, yeah. you know, Nirvana at least had some indie cred through uh, Bleach and... Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was coming up uh, through the radio ranks uh, in uh, that fall. But no, they they were doing their own thing. And uh, to a point, uh, as we said earlier, they, they it was a little bit of a misfortune that uh, most people were introduced to STP through Plush, uh, which had, you know, if the album dropped at the wrong time, the video dropped at the really, really, really wrong time. When, uh, you know, grunge was at its fever pitch. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that's an excellent point that it took a year for the album to get out. And by the time it got out, of course, they were going to be looked at as derivative because that was the beginning of, I guess you could say, the second wave, which coincidentally included Candlebox. And later Bush. And now it brings us to the second myth about Stone Temple Pilots. And the second myth is that they were a grunge band. Now, no. Well, here's the thing. Had their careers stopped after core? Okay, maybe. Maybe you can call them that. But from the second album, Purple Onward, they really like progressively started throwing the shackles of grunge off. And they were exploring to other areas of rock that weren't anywhere near grunge. Like uh, later on with... You know, they started getting into more be melodic Beatlesy territory, getting more into Bowie type stuff with the Tiny Music album, um, getting more into glam in some ways as well with the with the fourth album. So, but from Purple onward, they started like 
cutting the cutting the cords of grunge off a little bit. So, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. By, by, by the end, they were not even close to a grunge band. Oh, not at not at all. And I don't even think they were really a grunge band to begin with. I think that they were a very riff heavy, uh, hard rock, uh, maybe even metal band. Uh, they obviously were just as influenced by Kiss as a yeah. lot of the other uh, West Coast bands, we'll call it. And obviously, you know, the, the the obvious sign that they weren't a grunge band is they weren't from fucking Seattle. They were from, they were these uh, uh, nobodies from San Diego. You know, they, you know <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, all the bands that made it big uh, were either on their second iteration of a band or had been uh, toiling in obscurity for five years. No, they were just some new, uh, they were just some dudes that knew each other in San Diego. They got together. Uh, uh, Robert DeLeo, who's their main songwriter, uh, knew his riffs. Uh, but as time went on, those riffs went from being crunchy to being fuzzy. Yeah. Pur- yeah. Uh, purple is where things start to get fuzzy and where things start to get weird. And uh, we'll talk about it a little bit uh, later, but I-, I consider Vaseline one of the weirdest songs to be a staple of, uh, of alt rock radio or modern rock radio. You don't hear it much anymore, but, um, no, like you said, by the time we get to the second half of the album number four, uh, there's as much bossa nova going on <laughs> yeah. as, as there yeah. is Kiss. Yeah, I mean, which, which comes to the third myth about Stone Temple Pilots, that they were not original or did not have their own sound. Now, that is really bullshit because people focus so much on who STP were trying to sound like when they weren't really trying to sound like them, and they don't focus on as much as how no one else on in rock radio in the 90s sounded like Stone Temple Pilots. Not the Pumpkins, not Bush, not Pearl Jam, not Soundgarden, not Alice in Chains. None of those bands were incorporating Bowie, Beatles, and Bossa Nova <laughs> into yeah. their sound the way STP were doing. Nobody. Yeah, and, and the only one of those bands that you could really say that maybe their melodies were lovely yeah. maybe was, was Soundgarden. but. Yeah. Yeah. But Wyland just had the, the his his melodies uh, or his you know the melodies he, that he would come up with were were very they were lovely they were just sort of these pretty uh, you know they had this sort of soaring they could soar or they could glide or they could yeah. just sort of you know they just had this sort of almost not psychedelic but almost kind of like soothing like rubbery. Yeah. Uh, effect uh, to them uh, it was yeah yeah and and. Then the other thing too, and and let, let's uh, put a, a kind of a, a half myth in here. So we'll have five and a half myths that yeah. uh, Scott Weiland was a bad singer. Uh, he wasn't. He was no, a very good not, singer. <laughs> no, not at all. The thing about it is, is everybody thought he was aping Vetter because, again, on core he does have that kind of, you know, the kind yeah. of the moaning and and, and yeah. growling. But yeah. as he goes along, uh, he at, at first he's singing from his belly. But yeah. then as he goes along, even on even on core, like as it goes along, he goes from being in the belly to in the throat. And so yep. it gets very throaty. Uh, and so he's got this kind of uh, like almost raspy throaty thing going on all through Tiny Music, which, you know, we yeah. both agree is their best record. Yeah. Uh, but even like that dead and bloated bit that, that we started this uh, discussion with, he's more in that raspy uh, soulful, like Lou Reedy, uh, Bowie kind of mode than he is in any sort of like grunge, you know, sort of warbly uh, superhero. 
Now, uh, myth number four or four and a half, that they were just a singles band. Now, Stephen Thomas Erlewine is a music critic for allmusic.com. Uh, I'm a big fan of Erlewine. I really like his, yeah, uh, his, he, his writing. He, yeah, he's a very good writer. He's a contemporary of ours, by the way. He's not... He is, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He, he's in his mid forties. He wrote that STP because he was giving a review to their greatest hits collection. Thank you, and uh, he called it "quote nearly perfect." And in the review, he said that STP were the best straight ahead rock singles outfit of their time. Now that is a compliment. That's a very good compliment to them. But they are more than just that. And I've always felt that. Even Core, Core is a really good album, man. If you sit down, like 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 yeah. divorce. You, Divorce yourself from the grunge mania of the time. Just sit down and listen to Core. That is a badass, fucking kick-ass rock and roll record. And yeah. Purple, Purple is an, is an evolution from that and, and, into uh, exploring the psychedelia and glam. Tiny Music goes even further. And then number four is where it all coalesced when they really became their own band. Those first yeah. four al- Those first four albums are phenomenal, all four of them. Now, I'll, I'll kind of admit that, uh, you know, I'm with Erlewine or for most of my life since uh, SDP hit the scene, I've been with Erlewine. Uh, I've made the joke uh, many times and we've uh, repeated it several times in the history of this podcast that SDP was the Jethro Tull of the 1990s. Uh, <laughs> and I will say this. Thank you. The album that Erlewine was reviewing is an absolutely essential part of any strong rock and roll collection, especially if you want 90s rock, you have to have the album Thank You because it really does. It captures those two or three great songs from each of those records uh, and it compiles and it's like 13 songs and it's just, it is perfect because it captures the best of the best. Were they a great singles band? Yes. But like Arturo had just said, they weren't just a great singles band and I have come to embrace that as I've gotten older. Like you said, Core with stuff like Cracker Man, uh, Purple with like Pretty Penny. And so, you know, you can, you know, you can point to like deep album cuts on each one of those uh, records and like even like Tiny Music and like Tiny Music and Down, all of a sudden, you know, not only is Wyland proving that he's a good singer, he's actually, he's not even rock singing. He's just plain old singing. He's, he's crooning. Yeah. In some spots. He, he was a know? great singer. <laughs> yeah. And, great it's, singer. and some of those ballads, like on the second half of Tiny Music, there's some really lovely uh, uh, balladry uh, that goes on there. So, yeah. Were they a great singles band? Actually, yes. They were the best singles band of their era. Uh, I would say without much of a doubt. Uh, but, yeah, it definitely went beyond that. Uh, all five of these records of the uh, first iteration of STP are worth your investment and and worth the deeper dive uh, because yeah. there are some real gifts and some real pleasures. Right, exactly. And now the fifth and final myth, or five and a half, about STP is that they were not respected by their peers. Now, let me go to some quotes here. Um, of course, I got these from Wikipedia, uh, <laughs> but this is an MTV writer named James Montgomery who published an article um, about music critics and their opinions in the 1990s. And when he got Stone Temple Pilots, this is what he said, quote, all I'm suggesting is that perhaps it's time to admit that we were wrong about them from the get-go, that we treated them unfairly. Hmm. Um, uh, let's see, Earl Wine in that same review 
said, STP made music that sounded great at the time and even better now, and that their music has stood the test of time. And another quote, this one is from Billy Corgan, the lead singer, guitarist from Smashing Pumpkins, uh, after Scott Weiland died. Uh, and he paid tribute to him. This was, it was in December 2015. And basically, he called him one of the greatest voices of their generation. This is what Corgan said, quote, it was, I'd guess you'd say, my way of apology for having been so critical of STP when they appeared on the scene like some crazy man-fueled rocket. And not only was the knight up front freshly handsome to a fault, but he could sing too, as any supreme actor gives a real and different voice to each character played. It was STP's third album that had got me hooked. He's referring to Tiny Music Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop. A wizardly mix of glam and post-punk, and I confessed to Scott, as well as the band many times, how wrong I had been in assessing their native brilliance. And like Bowie can and does, it was Scott's phrasing that pushed his music into a unique and hard-to-pin-down aesthetic sonic sphere. Lastly, I'd like to share a thought which, though clumsy, I would I would hope I hope would please Scott in hominem. And that is, if you ask me who I truly believed were the great voices of our generation, I would say it were he, Lane, and Kurt. Lane being Lane Staley of Alice in Chains and Kurt being Kurt Cobain. Yeah, uh, they were respected by their peers, <laughs> needless to say. Yeah. Well, two things. Uh, one, uh, I would hope that Billy Corgan would say that because, uh, yeah, I mean, Wyland even back then was probably a, a more profound voice of his generation than Billy Corgan was. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, so there's that. But I think that one of the things the one of the threads running through those quotes you just said is that maybe they were respected, but they weren't respected enough. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that uh, yeah. that they uh, they, they did have uh, their respect. And, yeah, I, I think that even I'll t here's here's a story that I can I can give you to show the kind of respect that SDP had fans. They had metal fans uh, hooked back then, like the people that were like like metal metal fans, not like grunge fans. You know, you and I kind of came onto it. You know, we we graduated from classic rock and then Nirvana changed our lives. Yeah. Well, we, we had a friend in college. Um, maybe this is an excuse to turn him on to our, uh, here podcast, Brian Gruda, uh, <laughs> who, uh, was a diehard misfits, Danzig, uh, black flag, uh, kind of guy. And by 1997, 98, he was professing that his favorite album of all time was purple huh. by stone temple pilots. Yeah. So, the metalheads yeah. got uh, got Stone Temple Pilots. You know, yeah. like I said, you know the the big riffs, uh, Dean DeLeo's playing. Uh, you know, you know Wyland's uh, uh, histrionics and the theatricality uh, in his voice and in his vocals and the sort of the showiness yeah. uh, that SDP uh, kind of embraced uh, in their stuff. Uh, no, they they definitely uh, uh, de they deserve more uh, respect uh, than they got. On this episode, we started a new series that defends the recorded legacies of much maligned bands or individual albums that are overlooked. For the next episode, there is no overlooking what Chris and I believe is the greatest hip-hop album ever made. I will not say what album it is in this promo. 
However, I'll give a small hint and say this year, uh, which is coming to an end soon, marks the 30th anniversary of the release of this irrefutable masterpiece. Join us for the final curmudgeon rock report of this calendar year as Chris and I dive deep into the background and making of this enduring classic, why it mattered then and why it still matters today. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. All right, now let's go into STP's career arc. And I think we can really uh, divide them into parts and eras. You know, I, uh, well, we, I should say, we've kind of put them into six parts. Uh, the first four of which are by far the best and the ones we're going to focus on. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, part one basically is the formation from 1985 to 1992 when the DeLeo brothers, Robert, the one with the short hair, he's the bass player, Dean with the long hair was a guitarist. And uh, when they met Scott Weiland. Now, here's the thing. There are two stories about how Weiland met the DeLeos. <laughs> um, one was that Weiland and bassist Robert DeLeo met at a Black Flag concert in Long Beach, California in 85. They were discussing their girlfriends only to realize they were dating the same woman. Um, mm -hmm. That's I don't know if that's really true or not, but however... Um, supposedly, instead of letting this come between them, they developed a bond, they formed a band, and they broke it off with the girl. Each of them broke off with the girl. Um, however, <laughs> in, in, his, in his autobiography, Wyland, his memoir from 2012, he kind of presented a very different version saying that he and his friends and their band uh, were big fans of Robert DeLeo's bass playing. They saw him play in a show, and they invited him uh, to join them for some gigs. And it kind of went from there. But anyway, um, other band members drifted. The, De the DeLeos and Wyland stayed close together. They saw the drummer Eric Kretz play in a Long Beach club, convinced him to join the band. Uh, for a little while, the band was called Swing. Uh, then they changed, but that, that, that didn't last very long. Um, and then what they did is that uh, uh, after they convinced Robert's brother, Dean, to join Swing, um, he hated the name Swing, <laughs> Dean. So yeah. they, cha they changed the name to Mighty Joe Young. So uh, a lot of the songs that ended up on core were basically Mighty Joe Young songs. And they recorded a demo in 1990. Yeah. Now, the and they, uh, yeah. Go they, ahead, they, the, the reason that they had to change the band's name, I should, uh, they had uh, trademark uh, uh, issues because I think Mighty Joe Young referred back to a, uh, to a monster movie or yeah. it was like a, it was like a, a B list King Kong uh, yeah. franchise of some kind. Actually, and no, it was, it was a, that was one thing. It was two things. It was that. And the second thing is that they got a call from a lawyer who informed them, their lawyer, that there was a blues musician already had the name Mighty Joe Young. Ah, ah so, okay. So it's, it's both. Yeah, well, well, there you go. So, so then they uh, they did that, and then of course, uh, I'm assuming I know that uh, the the Wikipedia and the fan page stuff they they go on to this that um, who knows maybe they were stoned or something and they 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 liked the uh, the STP uh, gas station logo the motor so, oil yeah I I think that's true though I I think that one is actually true is how they found their name STP and they yeah. settled on the name Stone Temple Pilots. Um, but anyway, interesting to know that the Mighty Joe Young demo that uh, has some several of the songs on core already there um, had 
included elements of funk, <laughs> which hmm. you would never believe with STP and a little bit of yodeling even. Um, but anyway, they changed their name to Stone Temple Pilots. They went into, uh, they got uh, the 92, early 90, not early 92. Um, it was earlier than that, 91. They signed with um, uh, with Atlantic. Uh, Atlantic wanted to get their uh, their band, their kind of, uh, they wanted to get their, their, their piece of the alternative rock pie. And uh, like I said, like I said earlier, they recorded core in late 91, early 92. It took a really long time for them to release the album, but they released it in September 92. Uh, it really took off in early 93, like you said, Chris, um, with uh, those singles, uh, sex type thing, which got moderate, you know, airplay and then plush took off like a rocket. And then STP became stars. Uh, yes, I mean they do have some pop sensibilities. Uh, they uh, they show a little bit of, of flourishes. They have a little bit of acoustic stuff going on there. They've got the uh, like "Dead and Bloated" is a fabulous song to me because what is it? It's it's like this hybrid of soul, blues, <laughs> and like uh, like Black Sabbath. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it it has that kind of sludgy uh, tempo, but there's a lot of this sort of uh, uh, soul going on, uh, you know, the vocals are interesting in there. I think there's, there's this odd, uh, tension of this sort of big, huge bass, heavy, um, bottom heavy guitar and bass with all this reverb and echo going on ar- around it. Uh, and it, uh, you know, leads to an interesting effect. I think like we said before, uh, plush is the one, I mean, just this week, uh, in the last two days, my modern rock station, I've, I've heard Posh and I've heard Interstate Love Song. Yeah. Uh, ne- yeah. Neither of which which will ever die. Uh, yeah. And once in a while, you still hear sex type thing uh, on he, modern rock he, radio. Here's the thing about sex type thing. Even at the time, uh, the band was getting a bit of attention for the lyrics, uh, the, the, the rapey lyrics, if you will. You know, but, uh, but people didn't understand that they were anti-rapey. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like like Cobain with um with a Polly, um, it was basically Scott Weiland singing in character of a creepy stalker type dude. Um, of course, the video didn't help. Where you see a shirtless Scott Weiland with chains pink flying hair. all over the place, yeah, pink hair and looking like a rapist. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but um, but the song really wasn't that. It was him being in character. Now. At, at that point, Scott Weiland's career, he probably wasn't skilled enough as a lyricist to do the Randy Newman thing, the writing and yeah, character. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I would, I, I would say that Randy Newman probably had a, a had a leg up on Scott Weiland. But <laughs> on that, you know, but but yeah, but and that's the thing. So, I guess one of my points is that people will remember this album and this era for for plush and for uh, the radio friendliness of it. And again, you know the uh, the sort of the um, anti uh or the the kind of pushback it immediately got is as being again a year uh, a year too late but that's not fair because the album starts with dead and bloated and sex type thing which is a great one to wallop we should mention that uh the gifted one here yeah as a showman and as a singer and as an interpreter scott wyland was very talented the gifted one here though is robert deleo uh, well, well the, the, the guitarist is Dean. Robert is the yes. bassist. Okay. Robert wrote the songs. Oh, really? Uh, really? If you, if, if yeah, if you look at the writing credits, he wrote most. Uh, he wrote most of the hits. Uh, 
there were a couple of exceptions. Dean DeLeo and Eric Kretz wrote sex type thing, but, you know, plush and most of the rest of it. And then on through, you know, uh, uh, Big Empty and, you know, all, all, a lot of that uh, stuff with the, you know, the kick-ass radio uh, riffs. Right. Uh, that was Robert DeLeo. So he was, oh, wow. he, he was a force there. So, you know, they came uh, with a very strong, uh, very orthodox, uh, but also very interesting album that was very underrated and very slept on for the simple reason that, and it, it, it happens more than it should in rock that it, it's almost a truism an, enough to where you can say it, that a lot of times the worst song on an artist's album becomes the biggest hit. Which leads up to the part two of their career arc, the 93-94 period. Now this, this period is really important for two parts, for two things especially. First off, um, they were touring all over the place in 1993. And this is when Scott Weiland started getting into heroin. And yep. uh, specifically when STP were touring with the Butthole Surfers. Uh, in 93, the Butthole Surfers were on tour. Gibby Haynes, the lead singer, yeah. uh, the, the insane lead singer of the Butthole Surfers, was a heroin, full-blown heroin junkie at the time. And it's very much speculated. I don't know if Wyland ever confirmed it in his memoir, but people around him always said that, yeah, it was this tour with, uh, with the Buttholes that Wyland started doing heroin. Because, you know, he got turned on to it by Gibby Haynes. Yeah, I was going to say, if, another. if anybody's going to turn you on to, uh, to heroin, it might as well be Gibby, otherwise known <laughs> as uh, Kurt's last roommate in uh, rehab. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, so that's the beginning of Wyland's drug problems. And he had a lot of them. And also, this is like the recording and then going into 94, the release of an album that in the eyes of many, and especially these two curmudgeons, validated Stone Temple Pilots, and that is Purple, which had more hits, <laughs> you know, to, to, to more inescapable ear candy riffs uh, that just really were all over rock radio and were all great songs. You know, the the song that made it to the Crow soundtrack, Big Empty, which I mm-hmm. still say is STP's best ballad. Uh, as a power ballad, it's it, it's just unparalleled. It's the way the song moves, th- those jazzy chords in the beginning, and then just soars for the chorus. Uh, the other big hits, Interstate Love Song, you mentioned, Vaseline. I love Silver Gun Superman, um, Unglued, one of their, a great riff band with one of their best riffs. Oh, yeah. Um, you know. I mean, you know, and my, my untrained ear, I mean, I, st- you know, obviously I've not, like, look, I'm, I'm like your classic music critic. I, I don't know much about music itself. But when I hear Unglued, I hear one and a half chords. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that little veer off. And, but yeah. Hey, si- shit is simple, you know? Yeah. Like ain't talking about love by Van Halen's the same thing, you know? Yeah, sure. And of Basically. course they have this, the song that I've off purple that I've really, really come to imagine to come to love is the third track lounge fly. Oh, which yeah. Is like, which is like, it's basically their tribute to Jane's addiction in a way, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Fun stuff. I, I said it's a really eclectic record. You know, like Pretty Penny uh, is a really quirky, uh, twangy little uh, kind of blues. What would you call folk. it? Like a blues ballad? Blue. Like a folky, folk. bluesy yeah, folky. ballad? Yeah. It's a And so it's just a really, I think it's a strong, well sequenced record. Uh, I think that there's a diversity in there. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty uncommon. Uh, e- even back then, I mean, I really, 
I mean, the the combination of the the melodies and the crunch that you got. Right. But then, to me, the standout on that album always will be, and I always am still feel a little perplexed when I hear it is Vaseline. Yeah, you know, because that that was the song that this band chose as the first single off this record. Right. Can you imagine? <laughs> I know. It, yeah, it's a great it's, it's, it's a great, really weird two minute rock song with a weird time signature. And just this, yeah. this, like this mesmerizing, like monotonous riff, but it works. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and the, and the way it comes in with that with that sort of that that buzzing, like weird uh, sure. It's this just rising, buzzing, uh, yeah. not even a riff, but just kind of sound. But with this like swinging, fun, like basically like a swinging funk. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the drums are, are uh, recorded and mixed to almost sound bongo-like. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And so it's it's just a very strange, it's, it's like acid rock jazz with uh, a little bit of, well, yeah, Jane's Addiction, you know, I think. Yeah. You know, it has that, you know, that melody to it. Uh, and and that that's also when you start to get a sense that Wyland, to me, Wyland wasn't a singer so much as he was a vocal artist. Yeah. That uh, he could kind of play characters. Uh, and so he could slip into the belly, like the, uh, the full-throated or, you know, the full blast of the voice. Yeah. And, but he could go from like the verse, he's, you know, down here but then he could do this you know and it all works uh you know wherever he is in the song and so it kind of leads to this woozy uh feeling of inertia i mean it's 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 wonderfully inert rock and roll i guess absolutely put it yeah Yeah, and And big big empty is the same thing by the way sure wonderfully inert song yeah yeah i mean purple is the album that proved that stp really more than a singles band, they should have been more of an AOR Led Zeppelin type band, an oh, album yeah. cuts album cuts band, and that kind of leads us to the next part of their career arc, the part three, the ninety five to ninety seven period, and basically this is we're now entering the era of arguably their best album, in my opinion, it's not even close. Um, Tiny music, ellipses, songs from the Vatican gift shop, which. Uh, legitimized the band artistically. Um, this is when music critics started to turn around and say, hey, maybe these guys are pretty good. Tiny Music should have had as many, well, it did have hits, but it should have been bigger than Core and Purple. And one of the reasons it wasn't is because they just couldn't tour for it because Wyland yeah. had issues, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they tried. Uh, they yeah. had to, I mean, they they started and and this kind of became one of the MOs of the rest of yeah. the band's history is that they would start tours but not finish them or they would have to cancel tours altogether. Yeah. Uh, but also the, it, it got in the way of them promoting the record too because, yeah. you know, you have to go out there and do the interviews and you have to push. But where but Wyland at this point had blown himself out uh, yeah. so bad that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't available. But it, like you said, which is too bad and – so go back to 96. The grunge train is now falling off the tracks. Obviously, yeah. Kurt Cobain's been dead for a couple of years. Uh, Pearl Jam has successfully alienated all the dude bros, as we talked about on the last episode. Yeah. And, yeah. and gotten themselves down to a very comfortable uh, uh, hardcore uh, fan base of about a million and a half. Yeah. Uh, Screaming Trees, uh, as Lee Connor has admitted, they 
it took them two and a half years to get their record uh, out dust. And that was two years too long because it came out and it tanked. It absolutely yeah. tanked. Uh, Soundgarden was, was on their downside and, you know, they headlined that year's Lollapalooza, which was kind of a bust. It was them and Metallica and kind of gave Lollapalooza a bad name. And uh, they started to not like each other and they were falling down the charts. So they ended up breaking up. And so here comes SDP and they're actually sounding fresh. Yeah. But you, you could say that in, in the eyes of the rock world, they are sounding fresh and they are not sounding like anything else on the radio. Uh, first song off that record is Bang Bang Baby, which I love. Uh, that is just a terrific song because it has, it, it it's combines. Good, it's, it's, good, it's garage glam. <laughs> yeah, it, that's a good way to put it. It is absolutely gr- uh, grunge glam because it's. No, no not good. garage. Garage glam. Gar- garage glam. Yeah. Garage glam. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Because it's, it's very garagey on the verses. Um, and then it gets to the bridges and it turns into like, again, you know, T-Rex is a good corollary. Uh, and, you know, this sort of, uh, I don't know, like even like kind of that Frampton-y uh, kind of stuff from yeah. the mid-70s uh, mid uh, as well. Uh, there's that. I, I love press play off that record. Um, yep. and then to me, it has their singular and their best, uh, so what, what this album has their best song and their funniest song on it. Yeah. In my opinion, their best song lady picture show, which is one just, their, a, yeah, I agree. Definitely one of their top five singles ever. Great. Yeah. Song. B- yeah. Because, because one, it rocks Two, it has a very clever, unique, and a uh, wondrous riff uh, to it. Uh, but it has this sort of you know, kind of ballady, uh, uh, almost romantic swing uh, to it. Yeah. While also having a kick-ass solo by Dean Dalio. And, yeah. and just, and, you know, Wyland having that ability to have his voice become an instrument in this case, yeah. that, yeah. you know, he, he sings it so thin that it, it, it fits neatly into the, into the sort of that core melody in yeah. the middle. It's like it's, right, it's right, in right. its own pocket. So it's, it's fantastic. And then it has their funniest song on it, which is art school girl. I love that song. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's really, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's good. It's goofing on the pretentious indie hipster douchebags. Oh who yeah. Have, who, who have come to hate STP all these years, you know? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's, it's very, very tongue in cheek, but, and it's, well, it's very cheeky. It's very tongue in cheek and it's, but like you also said, it's also a nice, very uh, good fuck you to, you know, that, you know, this idea of uh, all the lunk, the the lunk heads that are after the, the, the the hippie chick in the bar. And then when the hippie chick turns out to be too hippie chick for them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They they, they don't want to go there anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. And then like, even then, you know, like at the end, you know, you get uh, some of the ballady stuff towards the end where uh, he's really actually singing. um, Yeah. And, and crooning. And so seven cage tigers is a great vocal performance. Daisy's a great vocal. His vocals are on for a guy who was ravaged by heroin and drugs. Like yeah. he was doing his, he's doing his best vocal work. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's interesting. Like I said, for most of the record, he, he goes from having that growl of three years earlier, which is yeah. the one that got him all the, you know, he's ripping off Eddie better. No, he's not. He's just doing a growl that serves those, those, you know, those bell ringing, awesome, Sabbathy kind of songs. Now we're getting into this more sort of, uh, you know, melodic, trippy, 
uh, 70s thing and he's singing throaty but then yeah. as he but then he has those those vulnerable songs where he's just singing yeah absolutely just singing and singing beautifully and so that's you know like like you said it art i mean i think by this time They've gone from sounding like everybody else, supposedly, to sounding like nobody else. Two more things about uh, I want to say about Tiny Music. Rolling sure. Stone magazine at the end of 93, um, uh, the Rolling Stone readers poll had STP as the uh, the year's worst band. <laughs> worst, <laughs> new, worst new band. However, two years later, when um, this album comes out, they gave it a glowing review. <laughs> you yep. know, and, and uh, uh, I, I think ST, I think, I think, this is why I say this is the beginning of the of music media starting to like soften up on STP, um, yep. and yeah, they made it to the cover of Rolling Stone in February '97. You know, yeah, um, yeah, and, and, and uh, that's but the thing yeah. is, but that's the other thing too. I think by then, and it, it became a theme for like five years afterward. Uh, it was starting to dawn on people that Scott Weiland was a singularly great frontman. Yeah. Uh, in terms of his charisma, in terms of his personality, in terms of that sort of rock and roll chameleon uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. ability. And just as they started to realize it is when he was starting to struggle and become a, uh, you know, not a public, uh, what would you call it? Not a scourge or, you know, kind of a, uh, uh, he was becoming infamous. Uh, he, became, he, became, he, be, he became a headline gossip news story with all his druggy shit. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, ninety nine being the worst, you know, being basically the uh, the worst of it. But you're getting to that. And then, like the next period, and the, the last important period artistically for them is basically the nineteen ninety eight to two thousand period, which is number four, um, which I think is a horribly, terribly underrated record. Um, number four, in my opinion, proves that Tiny Music was no fluke. Uh, the band had. More hit singles again. Sour Girl became a huge hit uh, yeah. in rock radio in 2000. And really, it was the band's last hurrah uh, as a major band. Uh, and and you can tell it captured perfectly on YouTube. You can find August 2001, STP played a show at the Rolling Rock Town Fair. And they were the headliner. And it, it is a fantastic show. They are just on. But this is like during the touring for Shangri-La Dida, which comes later. Let's focus on number four. Uh, when number four came out, it was recorded in late 98. They started at, it took a long time, released in late 99. And uh, it was kind of like a back to basics rock album or conceived as it for them. And uh, it's, there's some, the eclecticism of tiny music is still there. But the heavy rock stuff is really freaking heavy. Yeah, <laughs> at this point. yeah, yeah. As, yeah. As, if, as if they're as if they're trying to compete with corn all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the the heavy stuff is the heaviest it's ever been. Uh, yeah, I would say the best riff in the entire uh, STP catalog is down. Oh, I God, love down. That's, that's a that, monolith riff. Yeah, yeah, th yeah. That song is fucking King Kong. Uh, yeah, and just just really really great stuff. And it actually has kind of a funny uh, lyric. You know, the whole "Please to meet me" uh, yeah. idea and and, yeah. and all of that. Kind of, it, it's a it's a good exercise in self loathing. Um, yeah. Now, this is one blind spot in my research, but I remember because this is when I was in my my MTV days of, of writing back then. Yeah. Wyland, one of the things that 
makes this album kind, or this period kind of notorious is this album either is released during or just before Wyland has to go to prison for or yeah. has to go to jail for like eight right. months yeah. because of he kept getting himself arrested for drugs. Right. And so they couldn't tour on this album. Uh, so it's not that they uh, couldn't. It's not that they had to cancel tours. They just couldn't tour. Yeah. Uh, during during this time. And so, you know, they put this album out there. Like you said, they got a hit in Sweet Sour Girl, which is one of their gentler songs. Sure. Uh, and, you know, and then obviously Down uh, was out there. And, you know, they at this point, they're starting to get their sort of cult. You know, uh, I think yeah. that they're starting to get their cult that was going to go with them uh, long term. And like we said before, at, by this time, they are a critic's darling. Uh, I would yeah. say that they are a, a more of an intelligentsia darling, uh, certainly at the time. I mean, the reason that uh, uh, we were covering uh, Wyland and them as aggressively as we were is because they had become kind of a fascinating, uh, a fascinating uh, art, you know, uh, artistic uh, outfit. Uh, the other thing, obviously, and, 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 our, oh, and artistic and a fascinating artistic story. It's like if a band, you know, uh, you know, uh, think. Imagine if the if a band started out as the Monkees, and then like ended up as David Bowie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah and yeah. You know, well, yeah, that you know, that's the thing. It's uh, um, they started out in a zeitgeist, and yeah. then they they're one of the very few bands in the world. Uh, there's very few bands that have been able historically that have been able to escape their zeitgeist and grow. Yeah. Or right. detach themselves yeah. from their zeitgeist and and yeah. find an existence outside of it. Absolutely. I mean, there, you know, there's, uh, you know, what are some examples? I mean, the uh, the Stones kind of did it. Uh, the Beatles. The, yeah, the Beatles. But well, you know, the Stones kind of. Well, the, the more actually, more accurately, would be the Kinks. Uh, sure. The Kinks. You know, they had the you know you really got me phase, and then they were able to. Uh, they didn't sell records, but they were able to do the Village Green stuff, and then they came back to selling records with Lola and uh, uh, Rock yeah. and Roll Fantasy and Come Dance and yeah. all that stuff. So that that's yeah. a good example of a band that kind of was able to shapeshift. Um, and by number four, with, with all the Bossa Nova stuff that that goes in there, and all those sort of those sort of weirdly slinking, uh, crooning, almost jazz like ballads. Uh, oh yeah. That, that, that are in number four, uh, they, they were a chameleon of a band. Um, sure. You know, Wyland had chameleon-like uh, tendencies as a front man. You know, I mean, uh, you know, he was, uh, they had a song called Days of the Week. He was in the Hair of the Week Club. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the way that they could shift the styles. I mean, the one consistency uh, that they had was that uh, Dean Dalio shred throughout the, the entire course of, of the catalog. Uh, great riff banger in terms of his ability to get that uh, to get that sound on those riffs, but he could also solo like a mother too. So sure, sure, yeah, a lot of lot lot of good stuff there. Um, I mean, in terms of this other thing, I guess I'll, I'll ask you this question now, Arthur, since we're supposed to be defending uh, yeah. STP. Uh, what would you say the legacy of Scott Weiland is, and what would you say the legacy of STP is in a sentence or two, if you had to do sen- a short, if you had to do a short argument, a, a summation of the argument of their legacy, how would you do it? 
Scott Weiland as a vote. If, if, if you want, if you insist on calling Stone Temple Pilots a grunge band, and I don't, but if other people do, okay, fine. Then I'll say Scott Weiland was the most versatile vocalist of that whole group. Um, he was more versatile. I, I love Eddie Vedder, of course, but he was more versatile than Vedder, um, more versatile than Cobain, more versatile than even Lane Staley. Um, Chris Cornell was probably the the only one of those. He was pretty damn versatile himself. Um, yeah. Cor- Cornell had the power, but Wyland had the versatility and the eclecticism in his voice. And as a band, musically, STP, like, and you hit the nail on the head, they were the more chameleon-like of those bands. Now, we don't know, because what Nirvana would have been had Cobain lived. Um, so, but I, but yeah, STP were the most... Musically, arguably the most, I don't know if they were the, they had the richest discography, but they had one of the most interesting and the most eclectic, stylistically eclectic discography of all those other grunge bands. And Wyland was the most versatile vocalist. Uh, best heard, and one of the best examples of this is the final track on number four, Atlanta, which oh, is yeah. this beautiful, lush breakup ballad. That has all like this, it has these amazing like string arrangements for STP. Are you kidding me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. String, where'd that come st- from? Yeah. Stringer. It's, it's, it's this this epic breakup ballad, um, and it's just it's just a, a soaring, beautiful song that just kind of lingers and fades out, and it's like it's it's the perfect song to end not just an album but really a discography if you think about it. Um, it's one of the most, it's arguably the most beautiful song that band ever crafted in the studio. 12 bar blues, uh, really underrated album. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a kind of a strange record. I mean, Wyland, you know, I think he, he has a, um, he, I don't know if he wrote all the music. He has a, like a, a, he worked with a guy for a long time that was kind of a songwriting partner, but it's, it's a very, it's a strange record, but it's pretty cool. Actually. It's, it definitely, I don't, I don't know if he was aiming to sell any records with that. But it was just kind of Wyland kind of doing his thing. And and I, I think this is another part of the mythology of, of STP that, you know, when we think of STP, we automatically think of Scott Wyland. But a question I've had over the years is, could you imagine what it was like to be the Del- Delio brothers to, <laughs> you know, to, that they were kind of the, you know, they were the engine. You know, uh, he might have been right. the driver, but they were the engine. Uh, like writing the songs and doing those arrangements. And, and Eric Kretz, I guess, deserves some credit too. But the Dalios, think about the challenge. So not only did they have to accept being overshadowed, uh, you know, by this peacock that they have uh, uh, fronting the band, but then they have to keep the band going when he starts to go in the shitter, <laughs> you know, personally, <laughs> yeah. personally and health-wise. And so the fact that they were able to, uh, keep things stable enough to uh, get Tiny Music and Number Four as clean and right. as and as sweeping and as beautiful as they were. And not only that, but the fact that they could even survive to for us to talk about the next important part—that's a setup—is <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of a miracle in and of itself that they actually. And uh, you know, this time this was another one. Uh, this was kind of the, the the last hurrah where they actually tried to do the album stuff again um, and do the tour. But tell us about this. Yeah, well, well, what, what it is really, 
Uh, we're getting into what we I would say part five of their of their story arc, 2001 to 2003. Um, the band releases uh, their fifth album, um, Shangri La Dida, which isn't very good. It's kind of STP running out of the gas. They have one good hit, yeah. minor hit single, Days of the Week, um, which is okay. which is good. Yeah, which is I mean good. it's it, it's it's by the numbers pop, but it's yeah. but it's very it's very good by the numbers pop. Yeah, yeah. and uh, but they went back to touring. Yeah. Go on YouTube, check out the Rolling Rock Town Fair show from August 2001. STP is on. They're playing their hits. They're playing the deep album cuts and Wyland's in great vocal form. The band's in great shape. It's just really, really, really good. If you want to see how good of a live band STP were when they were really like locked in. Um, yeah. So yeah, but yeah, this is probably, this is their last tour for a while with the original lineup. Uh, they broke up in 2003, um, pretty much done, right? And that's when that's when uh, the, the Greatest Hits compilation came out. Then we go into the part six part of the narrative arc, uh, 2008 to 2015. The band reunites and does a lot of touring from 2008 to 2010. A lot of touring. Yes. Um, as the original uh, STP. Uh, they released their self-titled album, Stone Temple Pilots, in 2010. Doesn't do very well. Frankly, it's not very good. It's kind of yeah, like re- yeah, re- reaction. Yeah, by that point, who wants to actually buy the records? Or yeah. you know, it's like it's like Prince said, you know, I could make the greatest record of all time here in my 50s, but you know, at the end of the day, the radio programmers only care about those five songs. You know? Yeah, yeah, I know. SDP is uh, going to be in the same thing, so sure. So why not phone it in? You know. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, in any case, the interband tensions return. I suspect it was the drugs again because he never really yes. could get out of that, um, leading to Wyland being fired in 2013, and then the and then they had a, a legal fight. I think in 2013, 2014, over who over who can keep the name Stone Temple Pilots. It was Wyland yeah. and the other against the other three. The other three won out. Uh, then, yep. uh, oddly enough, Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park joined STP for a little while as their lead singer. They record an EP that's not very good. Um, because come on, it's Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park who gives a shit. And uh, <laughs> um, B- B- Bennington leaves within two years. Um, Scott Weiland dies of a pills, alcohol, cocaine overdose in 2015. And that kind of puts the kabush or the kibosh on STP. Um, I mean, they, 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 they did get after, after both Weiland and Bennington died, Bennington killed himself. Uh, I think, I believe in 2017, was it? Or 2016? Yes. Yeah. It was Around either 2017 there. or 18. Yeah. Yeah. So what they did yeah. in 2016, a year after Wyland died, uh, they got this guy named Jeff Goot. I believe that's how you pronounce his name, Jeff Goot. Uh, uh, well, they, they, they were auditioning first, okay? And there were rumors circulating about a Filipino guy who's going to uh, uh, be the singer. <laughs> of course, that didn't happen. So they got this dude um, who was a, uh, X Factor Season 3 runner-up, Jeff Goot. <laughs> to be the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots, and he's been with them ever since. And honestly, I don't acknowledge that as Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, hey, yeah, I, you know, I don't care what happens there. You know, that's the modern music business for you. Where if you get on TV in one of these singing shows, you too could sing for Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, uh, or and, you know, uh, you know that Judas Priest journey 
uh, stories of the guys that are in cover bands or karaokeing and right. just so happen now they work for their favorite bands. But yeah, yeah no, like you said, it, it it's a sad, it's ultimately a sad uh, story that they were, yeah. like you said, they got to a point where they were so good live and uh, were had locked in and they knew themselves as a band. They had that identity. They had that working relationship. It just was, um, it was Wyland and, and drugs. I mean, yeah. Wyland I, and drugs. So we just talked about Stone Temple Pilots and we made a point of saying that as they progressed in their discography, they started incorporating more Beatles and Bowie, David Bowie influences into their music. Well, that is uh, appropriate for what we're going to do now, because as you know, David Bowie was, they had his life changed by the Velvet Underground when he listened to their first album. Uh, back in 1966, he had the acetate for it before it came out in 67. And the Beatles and the Velvet Underground. Hmm, what's their connection? Well, here's the connection. And that's that sound. That sound you hear. The, the coins. Beginning, the coins. The beginning of our vault segment, where we each take two classic albums from the past and shine a deserving light on them. However, this is a very special segment of the vault. In fact, it is the first of its kind. As you may know or should know, two very well-known filmmakers have recently released two documentaries, one of which is actually a documentary series, each one profiling easily one of the 10 greatest and most influential bands of all time. Now, Todd Haynes, the first one, Todd Haynes, long having been one of America's most underrated directors, just put out the definitive, authoritative documentary about the Velvet Underground, simply titled The Velvet Underground. Uh, it's a wonderful film, one of the greatest music documentaries I've ever seen, and it's a kaleidoscopic menagerie of interview footage, 1960s pop cultural footage for context, and never before, never before seen footage of the band both performing and just being themselves. You should really check it out. I, I, I'm not sure if it's on Amazon or one of the others, but anyway, on one of the other streaming services. So to honor Mr. Haynes's achievement, my vault selection will be a Velvet Underground album, one that I think is their most overlooked. Now, the other one, the other documentary is more high profile. Uh, Peter Jackson, uh, Peter Jackson, most notable for his excellent Lord of the Rings movie trilogy and Academy Award-winning trilogy, has just released on Disney Plus a seven-hour and 40-minute epic divided into three parts about the Beatles' writing and recording sessions for their Get Back project in January 1969. About 40 hours of footage was shot, were shot, uh, during this very contentious time in the band's history with their strained relations being in the forefront. The footage was eventually whittled down to a one hour and 20 minute documentary film called Let It Be, released a year later. What Jackson did was go back to the original footage and assemble this monolith of a film or film series that gives an expansive, larger in scope and more contextualized look into what was really going on with the Beatles at the time. Yes, relations were strained, but it was not all doom and gloom. If anything, this, these films are really about and a testimony to how a band of brothers who are growing apart for various reasons 
can somehow manage to keep it together enough to create great art. Of course, um, this series is called The Beatles Get Back, and Chris's vault selection will be an album from the Beatles' illustrious catalog, but not in the way you might expect. Uh, but first, we'll start with The Velvet Underground. Chris, are you, are you ready for this? I am. Oh, and it, it bears mentioning that the, uh, the Todd Haynes uh, documentary on VU is available on Apple TV. Apple Aha. TV Plus. Okay. That is the there streaming service that That's, has okay. that. Okay. Or just go to the torrents and download it illegally, like I did. Well, there you go. He, he lives in South Korea, folks, so, so the fuzz can't get him. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. What album by the Velvet Underground am I going to talk about? All right. The album is White Light, White Heat from 1968. Now, the defining album of the Velvet's career and the one that is on any respectable critic's shortlist of the greatest albums ever recorded, and justifiably so, is their debut, The Velvet Underground and Nico, from 1967. Although it was actually recorded and should have been released in 1966, it wasn't because the record label at the time had issues with the subject matter We'll get into that later. <laughs> but anyway, it's uh, arguably the most influential album ever made, with at least five different subgenres of rock having been spawned by it. Their self-titled album from 1969 is also a popular favorite among fans and critics, mostly for that impeccable first half of the record, which has some of the most nakedly emotional and beautiful songs Lou Reed ever wrote. Candy Says, Pale Blue Eyes, etc., However, the second half of that album suffers from inconsistency and a couple of half-baked songs that should have been replaced by any of the large number of amazing outtakes the band had at the time. Um, while still an incredible album and almost any other band's greatest moment, it's actually my least favorite VU album, although it's still a great album. Uh, and then you have their final album, 1970's Loaded, which while being their most overtly commercial record, it also contains some of the most epic and enduring rock anthems Reed ever wrote. You know, rock and roll, Sweet Jane, New Age, etc. It's the album that proved the Velvets could make beautifully crafted, searingly catchy, tailor-made for radio rock and roll as good, if not better, than any other band. A strong case can be made that this is their second best album. However, I will not make that argument. The reason for that is that I believe the album that unfortunately gets lost in the shuffle and not mentioned as much as the others is their second album and last album with bassist, viola player, avant-garde, envelope pusher John Cale that is White Light, White Heat from 1968. Now, there's been a lot of debate as to the origins of punk rock or where it came from, but the general and correct consensus is that the roots of punk rock lie in that onslaught of aggressive garage rock bands from the mid-1960s, most of whom were American, chronicled in the Nuggets box set series. Uh, they're little known, and they released, most of them released no more than two to five singles. I, for one, have always and will maintain that the first real punk rock single was the Who's My Generation from 1965. Um, if you think about what the hallmarks of punk rock are, anti-authoritative, angry, full of energy, confrontational, loud, my generation has all of that and then some. 
And while the first official punk album is always argued to be somewhere between the Stooges' self-titled debut from 1969, produced by John Cale, by the way, Mm -hmm. and the Ramones' self-titled debut from 1976, my not-so-humble claim, especially if you consider what the classic hallmarks of punk rock are, is that the VU's second album and the follow-up to The Velvet Underground and Nico is where punk rock was really born in my opinion. Um, White Light, the album, takes all the innovations of the first album, you know, the lyrical preoccupation with the sex and drugs underworld, the droning sound, the aggressive and atonal guitars, the allusions to avant-garde classical music, the understatedly pretty melodies. It takes all of that and just ramps them up to corrosive levels of noise, attitude, boldness and just visionary invention rarely and perhaps never seen or heard uh, in rock music before. Yeah. Emphasis on the corrosion. Uh, When I first heard this record, my, you probably will remember this Arthur was basically what the fuck Uh, I I was, I didn't get it and I thought it sounded like shit, Uh, but that was kind of the point. It's, it's beauty. Uh, uh, It's kind of like having a beautiful plate of pasta that's loaded with nails. And so, <laughs> exactly. And so, so you shit the nails. And so it, <laughs> it, it becomes this kind of performative pain art, but it's some yep. good stuff. But uh, the nail, I, but the I, nail, yeah, go ahead. The, the nails give the pasta its flavor, its unique flavor. Yes, it does. <laughs> there are only six songs on this album, but each song has not only influenced countless bands, but also likely inspired a bunch of people to start bands themselves. Uh, the first track is the title track, and it's this, this, this combustible flame of tribal rhythm noise rock with a subversive, knowingly catchy yet cheesy vocal melody. Uh, drummer Maureen Tucker, the drummer of the band, her, her minimalist drum patterns are pumped with like steroid power, <laughs> and Reed's and Sterling Morrison's guitars interwine in a, this, 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 this like battle over who can be louder and more dissonant. You know, lyrically, Reed rejoices in the speedy high of injecting amphetamines into your system. That's what the song's about. Yes. Yep. Uh, The Gift is the second track. And lyrically, it's a short story written by Reed, narrated by a hilariously deadpan John Cale about a romantically obsessed guy who packages himself in a box to be sent to the woman he loves only to find himself killed by a drill gun to the head while the woman tries to open the box. Uh, Musically, this whole thing is backed by this nasty, dirty, grimy rock groove that makes you wonder whether grunge wasn't another subgenre birthed by the Velvets. Yeah, perhaps. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and and, Um, and folks, uh, if if anyone has any uh, 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 notions of... Of, or, or any questions as to why Arturo ended up the way he did. Uh, it's, it's, it's because he grew up on stuff like this. Yeah, no shit. And wait till we get to the next song. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Lady Godiva's Operation is the third track. <laughs> and it slows things down a bit, but is by no means a ballad. It's this menacing mid-tempo groove and lead guitar sculpting something oddly melodic and beautiful out of feedback and noise that practically invented Sonic Youth. Um, <laughs> lyrically, Kale is back, this time singing, quite beautifully even, 
uh, reads lyrics about a sex change operation gone wrong. Yeah, needless to say, Lou Reed was not into cheery subject matter. Nope. Uh, <laughs> um, the fourth track, Here She Comes Now, is the only song in the album that resembles a pretty ballad. It's a, a careful listen to the lyrics chorus, though. Oh, it looks so good. She's made out of wood. Reveals Reed to be putting down a stuck-up woman, not unlike as he does in Femme Fatale from the first album. Um, FYI, for your information, Chris and all the others listening out there, this song was covered amazingly by Nirvana back in 1992. Look it up on YouTube. Um, it's, it's, the name of the song is Here She Comes Now. The fifth track, I Heard Her Call My Name, brings back the noise rock carnage with a viciousness that makes the title track almost tame. Um, Reed introduces each searing, ear-shredding guitar solo with the pronouncement, and then my mind split open. Um, it's one of the most riveting and gleefully abrasive recorded moments in rock history, in my opinion. Um, and speaking of abrasive, we get to the last track, and 17 and a half minute magnum opus, Sister Ray, arguably the Velvet Underground signature song. Um, in this song, Reed sings the, shall we say, charming story of a heroin-fueled sex orgy involving sailors and transvestites where one person dies, leading to the police breaking the whole thing up. Now, <laughs> what the hell kind of music do you come up with to back that story up? Well, what the VU came up with is an intense marathon of loud, pissed off, unholy, distorted guitars pumped yep. up to pumped up to Spinal Tap's preferred 11, augmented by Kale's apocalyptic sounding Vox organ and driven by Tucker's brilliant, subtly brilliant drumming, really shifting in mm -hmm. rhythm and time signatures throughout. It's one of the most intense diabolical, ruthless, simply evil recordings in the history of 20th century music. And yes, I meant all those adjectives as compliments. If you think Marilyn Manson is scary rock music, you can fuck off. No shit. Yeah, th th <laughs> this is scary rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. So, And uh, as soon as the last note of Sister Ray ends uh, and you're finished listening to White Light, White Heat for the first time, all you're left with is this feeling of having your mind fried, then melted, your innocence being crushed, and your soul being fundamentally changed. And at least that's how I felt when I first heard this album in my dorm room in Syracuse University in September 1994 during my sophomore year after purchasing it on cassette at one of the record stores near campus. And that's a good lead-in because while VU is on your brain, my assignment yeah. is to have the Beatles on my yeah. <laughs> so uh so not the, not the rehash uh so I think that everybody uh, most people out there that are listening to this podcast uh, right now are are like me uh or maybe like Arturo I'm about four and a half hours in to the seven and a half hours of get back uh yeah. absolutely riveted and, and fascinated uh, by this so far. Uh, I think the most jaw-dropping thing about it is that they go into that studio on January 2nd, that that television uh, studio, and they've got a few half-baked ideas and no songs. 
and they're supposed to have uh, everything ready to go by the 18th, uh, you know, 16 or 17 days later. And the fact that, yes, I mean, you can talk, you know, it, it shows the tension. It, it shows the bitch fighting between McCartney and Harrison. Coincidentally, Harrison was in the right on that one. Uh, you, you know, you see uh, Lennon kind of uh, in and out of giving a fuck, uh, first out and then back in. Uh, but think about the musical output that happened in those three and a half weeks that they come yeah. in with a bunch of, a, a few half-baked ideas and nothing and they come up with the songs and the output they did. And actually, there was so much tape and so much inspiration and so much uh, to dive through that they couldn't get an album out of it. Uh, and so what you ended up with was two rejected uh, mix and sequencing jobs by Glenn Johns. Coincidentally, Glenn Johns' coat is one of the stars of Get Back. Uh, yeah. this, this big bird looking feather coat, uh, which, <laughs> it's, it's really fabulously mod. Uh, so they, uh, they rejected the two mixes that he tried to do of what was originally known as get back. Uh, and then as they were breaking up, I believe they just sort of gave up and they made Phil Spector. Yes. That Phil Spector, the arbiter. And of course, uh, he pumped out the album that we all came to know as let it be, which took the source material as this, the music and all of that wonderful music from these sessions and specter did this sort of obnoxious hybrid of i want to make an album that illustrates the fact that it was never actually finished so i'm going to make it sound unfinished in parts and in other parts i'm going to make it sound extremely incredibly obnoxiously over the top ridiculously ludicrously finished uh and so you the got, long and winding road. Okay, no, no, no. Well, it's it's not. It's okay. That was McCartney's fault. Uh, <laughs> Spectre's fault was all was where all the string overdubs and the choruses and you know all all of the sort of classical uh, uh, ridiculousness and sap and and uh, lacquer uh, that came uh, on uh, to some of it. Uh, Spectre did an admirable job because again, it was stuff. You know, McCartney hated the process. Uh, Lennon hated most of Paul, uh, Paul's music. And so Spectre came in and made something respectable of it. Right. Uh, but it 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 kind of was purposely done as a way of saying that this is the dangling participle and that the Beatles leave uh, uh, the, uh, the story on. Well, Paul McCartney uh, famously, and I'm sure most people who are into rock and roll mythology as much as we are know, that McCartney absolutely hated what Spectre did, at least to his stuff. Uh, especially, he really didn't like the treatment of the long and winding road, or let it be, or I Me Mine, Harrison's I Me Mine, and also across the universe, which got this kind of strange uh, yeah. choral choral string uh, treatment uh, as well. He he, so, he, he, fu he fucked up all three of those Beatles songs. I'm not a fan of what uh, of the Spectre version of Let It Be at all. Yeah, well, we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, so. This sets up now McCartney, you know, having the power that he did in 2003, decided it was finally time to have his revenge on Phil. And uh, he recruited uh, three uh, young guys that had association with the Abbey Road Studios and with either George Harrison or George Martin. Uh, these guys being Paul Hicks, Guy Massey and Alan Rouse uh, to go in 
and essentially start over and produce the album anew, produce and mix it anew, and to make their own decisions. And so that what results from this is 2003's Let It Be Naked. Uh, the reason it is called Naked is because it strips off all the stuff that Spectre did, and it strips off uh, all the stuff that everybody else tried to do, and it, it goes back into the raw tapes. And, and, digital, and digitally remastered it, too. And digitally remastered, yes. Uh, very good point. And so the main exercise is, is let's take what ostensibly has always been uh, talked about and thought about and uh, curated as an unfinished record and make it sound like a finished record. And in that respect, they do a beautiful job of it. Yeah. Uh, Different, uh, different sequencing. Uh, All of the, those specter overdubs are gone. And uh, you also get uh, some different takes uh, used and, uh, and a different mix. And so, for instance, uh, Don't Let Me Down, which inexplicably was left off the finished product. That's uh, probably Lennon's best song that he came up with. Yeah, during uh, this time. Yeah. That dur- during this period is back on the record now uh, in, a, in a way that Billy Preston's uh, uh, electric piano playing is actually more prominent and uh, more lush and more lovely and less buried. Uh, than it was uh, even on the right. version that George Martin released, uh, the George Martin produced uh, single. Uh, and you get that. And, you know, obviously it starts with Get Back, which is supposed to be the original name. Uh, and it has uh, everything else. It, it gets rid of Maggie May and Dig It and, you know, all, and all of the chatter. So basically yeah. all the stuff that Spectre put on there to, again, the, the idea was that these were a bunch of guys fucking around in the studio. And so he wanted to make it sound like it. No, they wanted to make it sound like they made a real record. And so it's, it sounds great. It's digitally like remastered. It's sharper. It's stronger. It's more in your face. Uh, the vocals are way more up in front. So there's no, there's no reverb. There's no uh, 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 sort of subtle placement. It's right up there in your face, which really works on two of us with the voices right there. Really works on Dig a Pony. Does not work on the Long and Winding Road. Now, we we can goof on that song. I know what you're going to say, Arturo. All all I'm going to say is that there is no way to polish or improve on that turgid, maudlin piece of shit ballad one of the worst songs of McCartney's career. Sorry. Uh, there we go. Uh, which I absolutely <laughs> agree with. Uh, that, that's the one thing, you know, you can say this is not a total improvement uh, over what Phil did. I mean, Phil did make a couple of good decisions. This version of The Long and Winding Road, uh, McCartney for about two years decided he wanted to sing like a Muppet. <laughs> and so everything is up. You know, Get back. You know, yeah. it has this kind yeah. of uh, weird, almost cartoony uh, singing. That's way up in the mix in these songs, which for most of it is great. But for the long and winding road here, it's not the same vocal take that, that Spectre used. From what I've read, Spectre used the take before the one that's used on here, where he's actually just kind of like singing, like R&B singing. And he's got the he's got the, the growl and he's got kind of the soul and scratch in his voice. Whereas here, he's trying to do that perfect Kermit 
uh, take. <laughs> uh, and so at least Phil had the good sense to drown out uh, this piece of shit in the strings. And at least he made it lovelier and less annoying and less trite uh, by doing that. And at least he took the, uh, the honest vocal take as opposed to this one. Um, Still, you cannot make chicken salad out of chicken shit. <laughs> nope. 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 No, no matter how you, no matter how you swing it. Uh, no, you can't. Uh, I also think that in some cases, the, uh, the vocal, uh, you know, featuring the, the, the vocals so prominently doesn't uh, quite work. Uh, like I've got a feeling, I think it's a, it, it's a little too strong uh, there. Uh, I also think for you blue, uh, you don't need as much Harrison in your face uh, there. So, yeah. you, know, so you know, there's a lot of quibbling, but by far the, uh, the, the main reason to check out this record and what you would say is, is that if the idea is that they were making an unfinished record, this is finishing it. The cherry on the Sunday is the mix of dig a pony on this record, yeah. uh, which uh, proves if you couldn't really get it in the more staid mix that uh, Spectre put out there. This one kind of proves that in terms of musical vocabulary, John Lennon and Dwayne Allman uh, kind yeah. of draw, drew from the same sources. There's a groove sure. uh, on this. And same thing with I've got a feeling, too. Uh, you know, a McCartney's thing. There, there's almost like a southern, uh, almost like a, a not a. It's more like a basement bar rock type of vibe. Uh, yeah, in other, in other words, you're kind of you're kind of alluding to Creedence Clearwater Revival, who released their classic Bayou Country album in January of '69. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, you've got some of that going on, and yeah, you've got some country feeling, but it's this kind of it's got that southern rock sway that they had going on so the so the beat that they're working on uh is great and again uh i would say that this album uh, this take on it proves that they had the stuff there to make a great record uh and a great complete sounding logical record that wasn't too bloated that could get a good tra- that could accomplish a good track mixing and sounded like it was made on purpose as opposed to uh, you know all these filmmakers and all these archivists and all these other assholes uh, manipulating these guys in- into doing some half baked shit. That is not yeah. what happened. Wonderful music that is wonderfully presented uh, here on Let It Be Naked. Not perfect, but it does show that they had the potential to make a perfect, actually complete record back then. And now, folks, we have come to the very end. We have finished this long marathon episode where we defended Stone Temple Pilots, hopefully successfully, I think successfully. Yes. And we uh, rhapsodized about two amazing documentaries and two amazing albums. And as a little, let's talk about our next episode, Chris, and let people know, but not give too much. We're coming to the end of 2021. Uh, 30 years ago was 1991. 30 years ago saw the release of what you, Chris, and I, two of us, uh, both believe is the single greatest hip-hop record album ever made. No, folks, we're not going to tell you what it is. No. You have to listen. You have to tune in for the next episode. But for the next episode, Chris and I will dive deep into the recording, the 
the background, the making, and what eventually happened in the aftermath of the group, the artist that made the greatest hip hop album ever made. We're approaching the end of 2021, which means we are in superlative season. Everyone has a number one record. Arturo's is Crawler by the band Idols. Mine is Home Video by Lucy Dacus. We're sure you have a number one album too. What is it? Tell us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. In the meantime, have an excellent holiday season. And we'll see you back here in two weeks when, yes, we'll be talking about the greatest hip-hop album ever made.